This episode is supported by the Felmer's Cheney Advocacy Board, or FCAB. FCAB is an advocacy board comprised of private citizens guided by a shared concern for social justice, corrections policy, and the successful re-entry of former inmates as they return to their communities. The 411 Live. Where you can learn about issues that affect us every day. State of world. 411 Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. Think about this. A person is convicted and sentenced to 10 years, and then they finish that sentence and they're released. Now they have no food, no money, no permanent housing. What do they do? Who do they call? Where do they go? Hello, I'm Beverly Taylor, and this is the 411 Live. Real people, real talk. I have three guests joining me today who can help me answer that question. And I am pleased to welcome Robert Smith, who is the Harry G. John Professor of History and the Director of the Center for Urban Research, Teaching, and Outreach at Marquette University. Michael Carrier, Associate Professor and Director of the University Scholars Honors Program at Milwaukee School of Engineering, or MSOE. And Shannon Ross, who is the President of the Community. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, you know, according to one federal study, 68% of former prisoners were rearrested within three years. That's an outstanding number. And uh, another indicated that reentry programs can reduce recidivism by 62%. So something is happening there. First of all, as we get into this conversation to help us navigate this, will one of you just explain what a good reentry program looks like? Let's see. How about Robert? Oh, go ahead, Shannon. Go ahead. Um, a good reentry program doesn't look at statistics. It doesn't look at what outcomes are in a mathematical algorithmic sense because there are so many ways that can be manipulated to seem one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times the statistics um, can be used for the argument to not have reentry programs as they have been many times in the past, and they can be used for the argument to do more reentry programs. The ultimate goal is to promote what you want to have in individuals who are in society. So whatever you would want in your children, whatever you would want for people in your family and your community, that's a reentry program that's effective because you are pushing and promoting the type of values and the type of respect for the human being that you expect them to be. And so by having an atmosphere and a focus on creating people in a certain way that you would want in your community or as a neighbor or as somebody dating your daughter, for example, mm-hmm. That's an effective ransom program. Look at it like that. Don't look at it as, does this knock it up 2.3% more than it did last year? Because that's all full of ways that can be manipulated and can be have bias in the way that they're seen and that the way the data is set up. And there's just a long history of how that's just crap. So it's not about the numbers. It's about the person. And are you promoting a person that you would want to have in your life? That example of a guy, somebody dating your daughter. I mean, that resonates with people when you think of it in terms of that. Somebody want to add a little bit more to this? Yeah, you, you know, I think, and I want to first say that part of what informs my comments are uh, men and women 
who have been a part of the, the carceral system in various ways, and, and that can be for brief moments or long periods of time and stretches. And so I want to make sure to, to, to acknowledge that. But the, I think what I'd like to add is, you know, first and foremost, we have to make sure that these programs reaffirm some basic principles around citizenship and dignity. You know, how, how, if we talk about, for example, as Shannon mentioned, you know, somebody dating your daughter, well, what about your neighbor? You know, what, what, what kinds of basic uh, life necessities would you want for your family and your family members and then also for your neighbor? Uh, and, and because if, my, if I'm healthy, uh, if my family unit is healthy and my neighbor is healthy and my neighbor's family is healthy, then my neighborhood is stronger. And so the, mm -hmm. those uh, basic inroads and pathways and those basic <clears throat> fundamental human needs have to be a part of the conversation and the, and the structuring of those programs. Very good. Michael, I saw you nodding your head. <laughs> yeah, and I think just building off of that, this idea that a good reentry program should be holistic, but not monolithic, um, because everyone coming out is going to have a different set of needs, is going to have a different set of skill sets. Um, and at the same time, that if you can focus on, for example, employment, what does employment mean, though, if someone is struggling with affordable housing? Um, what does it mean if someone is struggling with childcare and they have a job offer? And, and so for, a, a, as I'm thinking through the ideal program, if you will, this idea that it has to be holistic and not everyone's experience um, is the same across the board. Excellent. Excellent. You know, people respond to folks who have been through what I've been through or who have walked in my shoes. And that makes me go to you, Shannon. Will you kind of give me a little bit about your story? Yeah, I grew up in Milwaukee. Um, I was a typical knucklehead teenager, you know, didn't really care too much about high school, but I, I never really failed a class. I did, I knew enough to not fail because I didn't mm -hmm. summer school. Mm -hmm. um, went to UWM for freshman year. And then with the near the end of my high school experience, I was selling weed and never had any ideas of being a kingpin. Just, you know, there was something on the side to make some money because I, I saw an opportunity there. And uh, one thing led to another. I got robbed at one point. And this miseducation of manhood had taken over from just growing up in, you know, the inner city, growing up in public schools, listening to, you know, media and music a lot of times. I had no older siblings. I was an only child. Um, being, you know, mixed where I was, the way I look, I look like I'm white, but I'm actually mixed. And so I would be around my black friends who was always, I grew up like neighborhoods, black friends all the time. And I was always a white guy. You know, that was the joke a lot of times. And so I'm, I'm, they, my friends make a lot of jokes, but I'm racially ambiguous, so I can be whatever joke they want. You know, in the moment, I can be that race just to make a joke. And so that, you know, I had a chip on my shoulder a lot of times from being picked on. And so that mixed with this sense of I thought I had to respond a certain way when I was robbed. And that led to me down the road um, meeting this person again. And, you know, I, I shot him. And so he died, and I got 17 years in prison for that. And how old were you at the time? I was 19 at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so just from that, it was a progression through my incarceration of finding out, you know, within myself what it was that led me to this place and what do I need to adjust in my life to make it so that not only that doesn't happen again, but that my mind is so far beyond where it was that this became a possibility, you know. So fast forward to, I guess, down the road, I got my bachelor's degree in prison. Um, which is a long journey of about 11 years of very just different schools trying to deal with the, the restrictions the DOC puts on a person trying to do something positive in their life that's not attached to an official DOC program. And um, I started a newsletter 
2014 that called the community and just bit by bit growing that into now it's the most widely read publication in the Wisconsin prison system. Uh, we have another newsletter for personal development. We have a couple more that um, since I got them September 22nd, uh, I've been talking to people to get like a financial one to get people information on banking when they get out and uh, good accounts they can get set up. They don't have overdrive fees and that they don't have to put money into it and good credit things they can do now. So when they get out, uh, various programs are trying to get set up, you know, to start doing as well so that we can get people information on careers that are applicable to them and that they're mm -hmm. interested in versus ones that are available inside and you're forced to take because it gets you to, to a place that you want to or get early release, but you don't really have an interest in the field. So just trying to provide you know, a variety of ways to get people information when they're inside to take better use of their time so they're as best prepared on their release. And um, the thing we're doing on the outside with the organization is the Correct the Narrative campaign. And that's the kind of the t-shirt I have is asking about correcting the narrative. And we go out in these t-shirts, people that have criminal records or our loved ones or people that support, you know, trying to reform the criminal justice movement or having a different opinion about people with criminal records. And we go to areas and just do good things or show our skill sets. And by doing that, not asking you for anything, not asking for a handout, not confronting you, just naturally being seen doing different things, the mind associates you differently than it did before with the biases and fears and the negative narrative that's often out there about us. And so just kind of showing that we're not what you think and that the issue is more than you think and that there's a lot of, you know, confronting you with our successes, our humanity and our agency is kind of the tagline of that, um, that effort. But that's all under the community. And I'm also a grad student at UWM um, and a community fellow with the Wisconsin Decarceration Platform. Wow, that's a lot. And just to be clear, you got out of prison September of 2020? Yeah, yeah. Not even four months. I've been out. Wow. That's 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 impressive. Okay, so let's talk about um, this that ties the three of you together, and that the Wisconsin decarceration platform. And you know, listening to your story, kind of what you guys are doing is kind of what you were already trying to do, uh, Shannon. So, how does this work exactly? Yeah. Um... I, I guess I don't know if somebody else wants to ask. I don't want to be the only one. I can. I just, <laughs> well, I was thinking, let's let's uh, throw it to Michael because it's kind of your your students, I think. Well, well, well yeah, I mean, my students at MSU we have played a role in this. Um, but as you're already hearing, just sort of the collaborative nature of this project, at least for me, is what makes it incredibly special. Um, so the idea of involving students, of involving a multitude of academic institutions nonprofits, returning citizens, all kind of collaborating on this platform, providing services that will assist those that we're already sort of seeing need them. Um, and, and so for me, it's sort of this ideal model of a community academic partnership where there's, it, we're coming at it, I hope, from a position of equality, where this is not driven by any research agenda at the university level. Instead, it's kind of this nice fit where it fits, it aligns with, for example, my, some of my academic interests. It aligns with my students who are doing programming and computer science. And then it aligns with groups like the community that are trying to get the word out on these valuable services. So for me, it is this really ideal and, and, and in a way, it's innovative because often these partnerships don't unfold in this manner. Um, they're usually top-heavy or they're really driven by the academic partners in a way that often kind of 
subsumes the other partners. Um, and obviously, this is still a work in progress, but I, I'd say thus far that it really is an interesting model. Very good. So the basics. This is a website that people can go through. And at, at the beginning, I was saying somebody getting out, don't know where to go, you know, need a place to stay, what are the resources. This is a place that they can go to find out about these resources, correct? But it goes so much more than that. It has so much more than that. Mm-hmm. So, Robert, why don't you jump in here? Yeah, you know, the part of what's really important about the collaboration, as, as Mike highlighted, is you know, we, we can't build a set of uh, resources or create that wellness engine that Mike referenced if folks like Shannon aren't telling us what needs to be included. You know, if, and, and it's, it's really critical for us to, in this moment, as this question around uh, either reforming or abolishing systems that have caused so much destruction in our communities, if we're not valuing the expertise, uh, the lived expertise and experience of those who are directly impacted by that system and those systems, we're missing out on some uh, really rich and valuable information, but also these brilliant minds who, for any number of reasons, just haven't had a chance to be placed in environments where we can really see how brilliant uh, these individuals are and the ways in which they know uh, can can help to transform uh, not only that that system more significantly, but then also to inform us about what's needed as folks re-enter. And so, uh, it, indeed, this is a, a partnership with uh, you know really dozens of partners involved, uh, and we're leaning heavily on the expertise that we all bring to the table from our our, our vantage points. Uh, whether that's uh, thinking about digital technology and how to effectively use digital technology. Uh, how do we create something and then sustain it over years? You know, you know, all of that. That's big. That's huge, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. How, how, do you, how do you source it and resource it? Uh, you know, and, and then also, <clears throat> how can we use this as an opportunity for folks to develop professionally in other ways? What are some of the other offshoots? Uh, that can emerge. And so there's uh, a a number of folks in the mix, and we're all bringing our our relative expertise to the table. So I see it as a resource for somebody coming out, wanting to know about resources, where they can go, that kind of thing. I see it as possibly uh, uh, a resource for the service providers to know who all is in this game with them, in this community with them, and possibly some collaboration with that, because sometimes organizations work in silos and they don't know what the other people are doing and they're doing the same thing and they could, if they form collaborations, they could make it better. So I see it as something like that and possibly some job opportunities, employers getting involved as well. Um, And I'm, I'm thinking maybe even lawmakers who are tapping in to see what is needed, how the legislation laws could be changed and improved. I don't know. That's just from talking to you guys. That's exactly what we've been talking about. It's good that this is being recorded because I think we could just take that uh, and graft it onto the site. Right? No, I, Absolutely. Those just, are all the parallel lines that feed this particular initiative. One must make yeah. sure first and foremost to get these resources in the hands of the folks that need them most. 
Number two, let's make sure we are aware of what this ecosystem looks like so that we're maximizing the resources that are in play. And let's also synergize those resources. So maybe there are ways to bring folks into collaboration who haven't had a chance to collaborate for any number of reasons. Uh, let's make sure that if, we're, we, if we know organizations are working in the same realm, maybe there's something of a collaboration that can emerge uh, out of that. And then also maybe there are pathways. Maybe there are particular sets of entities that do something. And then maybe then that individual or groups of individuals might need to be informed about some other groups of folks that are doing some other thing that's connected. And so it's all of what you discussed. And then ultimately, let's make sure we're educating, engaging, and being very much vocal advocates about the ways in which we need to reform, change, and end various components of this institution that's caused so much destruction in our community. Excellent. Where would people find this website? What is it? Well, that's the that's the thing right now. We uh, we have a, a site, um, but it's so thoroughly in development still mm -hmm. that it's like almost if people look at it, they're like, oh, okay, that, that's you know that's nothing. So um, I mean, it's it's wisdp.com um, with you know decarcerationplatform.com. Uh, was it org? Is dot com? Is it? I think it's Mike. Yeah. It's com. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, we we are uh, right now just doing a lot of things to get it um, on a much better plane of where we're trying to have the resources available in a digestible form for anybody coming to it and have events uh, presented so that people can sign up for them and know what's going on. So it's like too much of an a beta area to even take it serious if you go to it. But that is the website. So I mean. It is up. <laughs> and I'm sure COVID has probably hampered some of your efforts as well, huh? Yeah. Especially when it comes to events. Well, there's a lot of virtual events. Sorry, go ahead, Shannon. Yeah, just a lot of virtual events. So, like, even people don't know about that. Uh, I got you. Um, you know, I commonly, I'll have people that I know who tell me about something that I talk to on a regular basis. And I'm like, hey, I got this thing going on tomorrow. I'm like, I've talked to you, like, 16 times in the past three weeks. Why do I not know about this <laughs> No, so it's just that's a common thing where there's not a lack. There's a lack of communication that we can also address with this to have everybody knowing what's going on, not just in their organization, but also just with events and how they can, you know, areas to collaborate uh, more directly. Very good. And Mike, uh, Michael, you were about to say something. Yeah, I, I was going to say to kind of highlight the potential of this digital component. Um, when the pandemic began, there was, as we're alluding to, the sense that all of these in-person services and events are going to cease for a while. And so in collaboration with the Department of Workforce Development, a number of the parties involved with the decarceration platform put up a kind of emergency stopgap site called Home to Stay that collected a lot of those resources that individuals would need right away. Um, and, and so, yeah, if you're getting out of a facility in the middle of a pandemic, um, that, that, that's frightening. Um, and so the idea of having a site that at least begins to catalog, and that, and that was done, I mean, really quickly. And so it, it kind of, to me, highlights the potential, as Shannon suggests, the decarceration platform itself is still a work in progress. But what I saw with that home-to-stay experiment is just how quickly these things can be utilized and how important they are, particularly moments during moments of crisis. So it's a precursor to the uh, right home to stay got it we're going to take a quick break we're going to come back and we're going to talk about some of the educational things that you guys have in play which i i'm really impressed with so we'll be right back stay with us i don't think we're free in this country 
And for a hundred years, you saw black people menaced and targeted and lynched and beaten and brutalized. I think we're burdened by this history. You are obligated to do something to address that. Well, you become part of the problem. More people have to be willing to do that uncomfortable, inconvenient thing that justice requires for things to get better. We don't have to fear fairness. We don't have to fear equality. We don't have to fear doing the right thing. Truth can inspire change. Learn more at EJI.org. Welcome back to the 411 Live, Real People, Real Talk. We are talking to three guests, talking about prisoner reentry, reentry into society, in the community, and education. And you guys have some educational projects going on. I, I personally, I'm very, very interested in this. I think I told one of you, maybe Shannon, I can't remember who I was talking to, but um, I used to go to the Green Bay Correctional Institute, the maximum security prison, and it was part of a program called uh, Challenges and Possibilities, and there were different aspects with it, and the inmates had to do certain things. I mean, they had to apply and qualify, and there was, you know, and different things they had to do to be included in it, first of all. And different people would do different things. There was some, there was a restorative justice arm to it. There was a financial arm to it, different things. I was on the communication, listening skill arm of it. Um, and what struck me was, of course, you go into prison and, you know, you're searched and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you go in and it was a room, and it'd be about 30 to 40 inmates, and we would sit and we would start talking about things. They would have their notepads, and they would be taking notes, and we would, I mean, they were hungry for the information. They asked wonderful questions. Um, after it was over, they were required to uh, write letters to the presenters, and the letters that I got were unbelievable. I mean, they told me everything I said and how that impacted them and how they could use that and all those things. So I say all that to say we have a bunch of guys in prison who are anxious and want to be educated to, you know, expand their minds. And a lot of like this program ended up there. And I'm thinking, why would you end that program? These people are getting out of prison. Why, why not give them the tools, some of the tools that they will need to lead productive lives? And you guys are, of course, on that same vein, I know, Robert, your research team uh, that you're leading received uh, an award, $745,000 for Education Preparedness Program. Explain that work to me. Yeah, you know, it's, it's right in line with what we've discussed before in terms of these various partners uh, in this effort working and bringing their expertise to the table. And so essentially what we're looking to do is to expand the numbers of college courses we're teaching um, inside correctional facilities, and then also uh, welcoming those folks who have reentered to join our classes once they are home. 
so we, we're expanding the number of inside and outside courses that we're offering. And what we're, what we're really working to do is emulate uh, this, this uh, rich uh, enterprise called the Bard Prison Initiative and make it fit here in Milwaukee. Uh, so we're, our goal is to expand our, our courses at Marquette University and then also continue to work with other institutions of higher learning in the area who are looking to do the same. Uh, but but we're, we're going a, a few steps further, which is, I think, what really led us to uh, receiving the award. And before I go any further, I want to send some prayers up to R.L. McNeely, who really is the person who drove this initiative and really encouraged us to think about an expanded model. Uh, so, so not only are we teaching courses, but throughout the, the crafting of the EPP, we have formerly incarcerated folks as part of our leadership team. And then we are also uh, uh, engaging with formerly incarcerated folks in our classrooms, such that they are also co-instructors. And so this is not only a scenario where we're, we're looking to expand the number of courses, we're also uh, looking to really benefit from the expertise of folks who've been a part of uh, the, the carceral state in various ways so that we do this the right way. And uh, we know that uh, Mike's been doing some work over at MSOE uh, with, with correctional facilities, and then there are other schools that have been doing similar kinds of work. And so as we get our system anchored at Marquette, we hope that then helps to inspire and then shape what will become a regional strategy where we're offering even more courses, both inside and outside correctional facilities, so that we're actually, as institutions of higher learning, doing what we are supposed to do, what we're built to do, and making sure we are being good stewards of that by welcoming those students into our classrooms who, like you say, are hungry for it and can really benefit from it because of the ways in which they're looking to move beyond the circumstances crafted and created as a function of that carceral experience. So let's talk about what happens when a person um, expands their education, uh, gets that secondary education. Um, something, you know, I've read statistics where they are less likely to reoffend. They're less likely to be rearrested. They're more likely to be productive members of our community. What's going on with that education? So inside, what happens when you try to um, start taking college courses, you become, you know, a whole person. That's kind of what you hear a lot of times when people take college courses in the real world, is they might not be taking a lot of courses that have some connection to what they're going to do in the end, mm -hmm. but it's having a connection to you as a person and your growth. And so you aren't necessarily getting a specific goal in mind with every course, but you are promoting within that person a wholeness and they're expanding their understanding of the world. And by doing that, they're having a better understanding of who they are as a person. So I know personally, when I first started getting involved in courses, I wasn't excited about it. It was something I was doing because my aunt was kind of encouraging me to do it. Um, I'm not very big on formal education, and I feel like the freedom of just learning on my own is better, but a lot of people you know, need that structure. But what happens when I started learning about a lot of different history of you know, various countries and topics that I may not have read on my own is it just naturally makes you more curious about your own mind. It makes you more curious about... Um, other things, and you become more, you have a better understanding of the whole world. And when you do that, it makes you change the way you are moving forward and treating people and the historical concept and perspective you have of things. It just all changes. So that's why it ties into you can't design a program to make people better. You have to simply promote their understanding of the world and themselves better, because that's what naturally will just grow into the type of person that you want to have around you in your life, in your community, 
in society in general. Yeah. And you know, Sister Beverly, we do that specifically by focusing on courses in the humanities, mm-hmm. bringing in courses from the arts, uh, looking uh, to select courses in the social sciences. So, you know, oftentimes with prison education, we start talking about training somebody to do a job, whether it's something like welding or even uh, being um, a pastor. Mm -hmm. What we also know is we have brilliant thinkers who are behind bars and who've been a part of this system. And so part of what is central to so many of the really, really good programs that are looking Uh, to educate inside and outside is this real commitment to the humanities to do the exact thing that Shannon just said. Now, I'm just going to guess that Shannon has probably looked into some of these programs, but the fact that he can articulate the significance of that human development in such a succinct and brilliant way, if this was a faculty meeting, it would take us two hours to do that. And so it's it's that development of the human character that we know these courses provide, and and that's that's the heart of the is really the, the the lifeblood, if you will, of what these courses are designed to do. Yeah, and I can comment to that on sort of it, it, it may be anecdotal or on the micro level, but what really convinced me about that kind of approach, um, and it actually ties back to the decarceration platform, is when a few of my students we're trying to sort of brainstorm on what this thing should look like. Um, We took a couple of visits to the Milwaukee County House of Correction and did essentially focus groups. Um, And those focus groups essentially turned into work sessions. Um, And they turned into brainstorming sessions where my students would essentially sit down with small groups of, of, of folks there and come up with ideas. And it was remarkable to watch over time um, the, those who weren't my students essentially blend in and then become leaders in that process. And I'm not going to say take over because it was a conversation, but they were giving ideas that my students had never thought of. Um, and, and, and so just the give and take in, the, in those brief few focus groups, and even that term, I think, um, overlooks a lot what was happening, was kind of my eye-opening moment that this is not simply good for the inmates, it's also really good for my students mm-hmm. um, and, and just sort of that relationship. And, and that's what I really love about what Marquette is trying to do with, with that integrated approach, um, because this is both both sides learn in, in this program. Very good. I think, Shannon, your shirt says change the narrative. What's your sh- shirt say? Yeah, ask me about correcting the narrative. And, and one of the ways we need to think about correcting the narrative is is when folks are in our classes, they're students. Exactly. You know, they're, they're students, they're learners. Um, they, they are part of the education environment. And, and any person who teaches a class knows that everybody in that classroom is responsible for that learning environment. Go ahead, Shannon. Oh, no. I thought you were going to say, okay. And the, no, no. And the, you know, the <laughs> other really um, important component to this is that when, and, and I'm going to get a little professorial, I apologize for that. Um, what, what happens is when we put a person in jail or if we put a person in prison, society has deemed that person is off and discarded and almost invisible, except to family members and loved ones, right? We, we've, cr- we've crafted this notion that if you're incarcerated, you're different. You're on the margins of society. We have lost sight of the fact that the folks who are incarcerated are also brilliant thinkers, you know? 
for wh whatever life circumstances might have put them in that situation, it doesn't mean that these aren't intellectuals as well, that these aren't folks who can provide a, a, a set of analyses that some folks haven't thought about or analyses that are even more sophisticated than our, our standard analyses because they've lived a particular life and they know something about America. They know something about capitalism. They know something about poverty. They know something about violence. They know, they know information and experiences that most of us can't even imagine. And there's, there's something there that we have to also uh, welcome and extract so that we all learn a little bit more. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, our time is up. This has been a great conversation, one that should be had over and over again. And um, as you guys progress, um, the platform is up and running. We might have to get you back here and talk a little bit more about what's going on, get an update. So thank you so much. We have uh, Robert Smith, Michael Carrier, Shannon Ross, great thinkers, and you guys are doing some great work. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. And thank you for joining us for another edition of the 411 Live. Remember, we are a nonprofit organization, so if you're so inclined, please go to our website, the411live.org. There you go. And thank you again. Until next time, I'm Beverly Taylor. This is the 411 Live. Real people, real talk. If you would like to check out past episodes, there are many ways. Go to your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Like and watch us on Facebook. Watch and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, go to our website, the411live.org. <laughs>